Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a, I guess, strength coach, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete. I run Strength Guild out of Topeka, Kansas, the USSF Lifting Federation with strongman weightlifting and powerlifting, and uh, among other things. You know, I'm just a general fitness entrepreneur slash athlete. Sweet. This is John Mike here. Been on Iron Radio several times. I'm a doctorate candidate, finishing up my dissertation um, in exercise phys. I'll likely be done late this summer, which is finally uh, in the works. I'm a competing strongman. I write for Muscle Mag International, and I love to trade. Sweet. Hey, why don't we just start quickly with you? Um, can you tell everybody what you're doing your dissertation on to get your doctorate? Yeah, we're actually looking at um, doing eccentric uh, contraction duration activity. We're, we're looking at um, the effects of eccentric contraction duration on uh, max strength, power, rate of force production, and um, muscle damage. So, you know, we'll bring subjects in. They're going to be squatting uh, twice a week with uh, four sets of six with 80 to 85% of their 1RM. And they'll, they'll come in, uh, do some pre- preliminary testing. Uh, jump squats with the tendo unit um, and vertical jump, and then they'll do their training, uh, which is squatting like twice a week uh, for four weeks. And we do post testing, which is again uh, squat jumps uh, with the tendo unit. Um, so we're basically our, our different eccentric contraction durations is one group is going to be two seconds, another group is going to be four seconds, and another group is going to be six seconds. So each group will have a different eccentric contraction duration. So you know, when you squat, you either go down two seconds, four or six seconds, and we're seeing what the differences are, um, increases or decreases in max strength and, and power output types of levels. So. Oh, cool. Interesting. What's yeah. the hypothesis then? You're gonna, you're, what are you hoping to see or expecting to see? Probably the six-second group is going to get the most uh, muscle damage and have um, the most decrease in, in strength and power output levels. So decrease during the soreness and recovery phase, you mean? Right. Right, yeah. yeah. So are you going to follow up with all uh, any of that and uh, see if any of those are superior for transfer into s- concentric strength gains? or uh, Sort of. I mean, the, the actually, the concentric phase for everybody is going to be the same. So we're just yeah. looking at the differences for the eccentric contraction, and everyone's going to be doing the same concentric, um, you know, cadence or, you know, duration, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if, if you get the most muscle damage – from the six second group and, and if your vert jump and your jump squats go down well then we know that well the two second and four second is probably going to be best um to not get as much damage and, and to have a greater effect on concentric types of strength but, but are you going to test it so i mean yeah directly after that training i sure they're like how long after did you test their vertical jump uh well they'll do they'll come in like before they do the testing uh-huh. to get a, a baseline measure mm-hmm. And then as soon as as soon after they do their last session, they're going to come in and do a, another one RM, and then do their soreness um, and their squat jumps again. So probably over it's over the course of maybe like three days. Okay. And how long's the whole test? Just oh, just three days long? No, it's four weeks. Okay. You know, I'm, what I'm getting at is I'd be interested to see what okay do these, and then like two weeks later after they've recovered, right? Test again. Right. You know. Yeah, because like I mean, after after they're going to be squatting like twice a week. After the last testing session, they'll come back in and do the post testing measure. So, you know, that's not going to take a whole long time either. But yeah, it's gonna it'll be interesting. This is the first study to actually look at differences in eccentric contraction duration because almost all the literature is comparing concentric and eccentric, you know, and isokinetic types of things. Right. So. You're not going to speculate then about which of these is superior for making someone stronger in the end? Um, you know what I mean? Forget the recovery phase, but like, yeah. I, I guess you could, 
presume that the group that gets the more muscle damage, like the six-second eccentric guys, that they get more muscle remodeling and end up being bigger and stronger in the end. But that would be a presumption. I mean, I think eccentrics on the whole, I don't don't think you can maximally develop a muscle without doing some aspects of eccentric training. And most people do more than they actually know that they do anyway. But, you know, when we did some pilot testing last summer, we had some people in the six-second, you know, group, and they weren't sore at all. Now, granted, they only did that once, um, but so they didn't do it twice a week for four weeks. So that's kind of the difference. So it'll be interesting to see how sore they're going to be, you know, when they do it twice a week for four weeks. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, that kind of sets the tone for today because we're going to talk about research, uh, everybody. Yeah. Um, before I do that, just real quick, Iron Radio News. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Um, let's see. Matt Bullroarer Piercy from our forums, our uh, Facebook page, he had a question, and people were chiming in, uh, but his question was, does crystal light and other artificial sweeteners spike insulin levels? Uh this is the kind of thing where I mentioned on our Facebook page, this is great to address on the show, but in the future, as we start to move some of our content over to the Libsyn server, uh, we can add a bunch of bonus content and we can really dive into questions that you guys have in depth. You know, I mean, as opposed to going to talk to a nutritionist, I mean, you could literally ask a specific question and listen to bonus content and just get the answer. The short answer to this is, no, crystal light's not going to boost your insulin levels. But the problem with artificial sweeteners is they eventually lead to dysregulation of the pancreas. Uh, and by saying that, if you want to follow up, uh, since we're not over on that new server yet, and I can't do a ton of bonus content, if you look uh, Science Friday last fall, uh, they actually did an episode where this uh, woman came out, this researcher, she did a big lit review, and basically her conclusion was that when you consume an artificial sweetener your brain and your pancreas almost become disconnected in a way in that your brain senses sweetness you know and so the anticipatory response from your pancreas is to start secreting some insulin you know oh sweet stuff that must be sugar pancreas get ready here it comes you know uh but then your blood sugar does not go up because it was crystal light, you know, or sugar-free tang or whatever. Um, and then over time, um, she was suggesting that your that blunts your pancreas's ability to respond properly, you know, because when the sweetness comes through your taste buds, your brain registers and your pancreas is like, I don't know, this may or may not be a real sugar load coming my way, if you follow me. So uh, that's the problem, is not so much that it spikes insulin, because it's not going to do that, but it's going to cause a disconnect or a dysregulation between sort of your hypothalamus and your brain and your taste buds and your pancreas, apparently. And again, go listen to it, get it from the horse's mouth, Science Friday. Uh, it was within the last six months. But um, that's the concern with artificial sweeteners. Now, some people talk about screwing with your set point, of, you know, your body weight and all that sort of thing. And I don't know. Um, I think like so many things, when you try to fool Mother Nature, sometimes it bites you in the ass. But so that was that. And then I also wanted to make a comment just in also in Iron Radio News. Um, we usually get pretty good reviews on our iTunes page, but there was one review and the guy's got a, a point to some extent, but I just wanted to address it quickly. He said something along the lines of, I'm just paraphrasing, that Lowry shares good information. He picked on me specifically, which is why I'm addressing this. But it's the same information that he was giving out 10 years ago. And, well, I'm the same person. And, you know, let's face it. I mean, um, if something is valid in science, it's going to be valid 10 years later. I mean, gravity is still gravity (laughs) like it was 10 years ago. You know what I mean? So there's going to be some things that don't change. Uh, we do try to prevent that on the show, though. Now, people will say, well, sometimes Rob and Phil and Lonnie, they do repeat themselves a little. Well, of course we do. After hundreds of episodes, there are certain things that we have come to understand, and that's just who we are, you know what I mean? But in order to keep it fresh, that's why we do things like news, current events, you know, all this sort of thing. 
and I am not afraid to change my conclusions if there's good new evidence on something. I've actually changed my thinking on a few things, and we even did an episode on that recently. You know, yeah, it's just, I mean, it's just, it's just, you know, evidence-based practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and so I don't really have any particular uh, book or reader hook that I have to try to sell. So, because he was talking about back in the days, he he said along with Michael Colgan, I remember reading his stuff actually. And um, John Romano. And I'm like, well, John Romano's more of a personality and a journalist than anything, I guess. But, mm-hmm. um, but you know, he does have a point. There are some things that aren't going to change. I think that's actually fair. Uh, but specifically, that's why we bring in new stuff, you know, not to mention guests, of course. I mean, that's a no-brainer. I mean, guests are going to bring a different perspective. So, um, I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up because normally people are very supportive of the show, and this guy was a little bit more critiquing. Now, he he wasn't nasty, you know, uh, and it just made me do a spot check and think, well, what? how are things different? You know, I mean, well, I competed five times since then. I learned a bit doing that, you know, yeah. um, and I actually got two degrees and a license in different things since then. So, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think I'm changing, uh, but anyway... Um, I think what disturbed me about it was not so much the guy's comment, but that he's expecting science to all have a new revolution, a new rules of lifting every damn year. And that's not how science works. Science is reductionist. It moves forward in little increments. And you can't expect what a lot of gurus lead you to believe, that there's a new revolution again. There's a new breakthrough. You know, just like there can't be a cure for cancer every year, we're not going to rewrite the rules of lifting every year, you know, or nutrition. So anyway. it's just to get it's just to get attention. I mean, in, in some in some ways that's good, in some ways that's just ridiculous. But there's just so much, so many people posting things anymore that that you know. I, I kind of posted a a, a a picture yesterday, and it was a kind of a of a quote from uh, like Ben Franklin. You know, either write something worth reading or do something worth writing. You know, that, that has a lot of truth to it. Yes, yeah, it does. Yep. So. If, he, if this guy was a troll, because in one sense, I've almost gotten a little paranoid. And Phil, you know what I mean, being a forum moderator. Yeah. Sometimes people will come on and they'll almost try to degrade other shows or other coaches or nutritionists if they perceive you as a competitor. In one sense, that makes me giggle that maybe we're big enough that mm-hmm. <laughs> other other people are trying to almost discredit us in some way. Yeah. Um, but I will, I will put this out to listeners. You know, if... Uh, if you think that we're fresh enough on the show and we're not just stale old scarred veterans um, or whatever you think, uh, leave a, a message on uh, a review on iTunes because it does help, you know, to get the word out. Uh, and that guy's entitled to his opinion. Maybe he's just an experienced guy and he, he feels like bragging a little like, oh, I've already knew this stuff. Well, I'm sure he knew some of it, but, you know, I'd argue a lot of the stuff that comes out of Phil's mouth or my mouth or Rob's. Mm-hmm. Um, and since he was picking on me, I'll take the heat. I specifically try to make it different. I mean, most of this stuff didn't exist 10 years ago. (laughs) So anyway, so that's Iron Radio News. Uh, And let's just get on to the the topic then. Um, We've only been speaking here for a few minutes, so I'll bring up a few of these things, uh, and then we'll go to break, and then we'll come back with some more. What I thought I would do was there's been a a ton of research activity in my laboratory, my academic uh, lab, and... A lot of this stuff is not necessarily going to get published. Maybe a poster somewhere, but I thought we need an outlet so some people can know about this stuff. These are fairly well-designed studies, most of these. Um, Some student involvement, you know, so there's some learning going on. But some of this stuff, I'm like, you know, that is genuinely cool. So let's tell the readers about it, or listeners. Um, The first one that I'll start with... um, one of the students is a bodybuilder and a very muscular kid, very heavily built guy. And he did a study comparing calorie controlled steady state versus high intensity interval training uh, on body fat loss and weight change and that sort of thing. And you hear people all the time. I just saw an article on T Nation recently. Um, one of the Cosgroves, I think, wrote something about the death of steady-state cardio, you know. And some websites, they try to build momentum and get behind a particular idea, you know, get their forumites in an uproar. But I haven't seen a ton of studies on this, and I don't know if you guys have either. Um, 
But anyway, what the student did was he looked at, um, I don't know how, exactly how many calories. It was something like a two or 300 calorie amount. And of course, you can do that with high intensity interval. The HIT exercise, you can do that in a matter of a few minutes. And with the slower steady state stuff, it takes much longer. Uh, and he was looking at body weight changes and everything. Now, one of my big critiques with a lot of this research, and I think this is a good message for listeners, is don't do a body comp study, uh, as I'm sure Phil and John both know. Don't do one of these studies in about eight weeks. You know, six or eight weeks is barely the threshold to start to change someone's body comp. I mean, unless you've got them on a starvation diet along with the exercise, I'm not sure exercise by itself is going to, you know, make one group shredded and the other group not change at all. And I think that's sort of the message that you're getting on online forums these days is if you do any kind of steady state, you're not going to change one damn bit. And if you do HIT training, you know, with the high intensity intervals, you're going to just be shredded in no time. And I think that's an exaggeration. But uh, long story short, he, um, he showed a general loss in body mass, uh, but no differences when you actually use a VOD pod and go look. Um, short duration study, not much happened. Uh, maybe that's not much of a surprise to people who are, are in the game, but uh, at least over, I guess the take home message, at least over a six or eight week period, you can't detect even in a laboratory the difference between steady state and HIT training. So when you read some of that stuff online, I mean, this is a very direct comparison. You know, these people burned exactly the same number of calories or very close uh, each session. Uh, w one for the intense approach, one with the less intense approach. And I don't know, in this sense, at least over a, one, let's say, a one to two month period, you're not going to see dramatic changes between those two things. So maybe that's just a sobering fact, you know. I don't know. John, what do you think? Have you seen studies where people try to do body comp changes in short short durations? or? Yeah, I have. And I, I just like you said, I haven't really seen much difference. And I think that's one of the, the, the limiting factors for those types of studies that you're not going to see massive changes in, in six to eight weeks. I mean, you need to go, you know, 12 weeks, 15 weeks, you know, maybe up, maybe up to 20 weeks. But, yeah, um, I, I mean, it seems everybody's either in one camp or another with, um, you know, HIT and steady state. They, they either love one and hate the other. Um, but, you know, one thing about HIT is that, I mean, you, you do um, – the body's potential to use lipids, you know, as an energy substrate is, is greater, you know, than, than steady state exercise. You have upregulation of enzymes and all this other stuff. But, you know, and it has more um, um, extent to um, epoch, you know, excess post-exercise oxygen consumption. Right. But yeah. I, I think both can be used well and in different contexts. Yeah. Um, it's just a sobering message, I think, and the reason I'm sharing that is because, A, I don't think that's going to end up going beyond a, a poster, you know, stage, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think the message that comes out from a lot of uh, web writers and gurus, some of these people are educated, some not so much. Um, they're just jumping on bandwagons, you know, so they can get something published sometimes, and um, yeah, you, calorie balance is an important thing. It's not the end-all, be-all of weight management and body recomposing, but, you know, you can't expect miraculous changes in under two months, you know. Uh, in fact, the second one, before we go to break, is very similar. Um, in this particular study uh, that was, again, it was, took place in the lab there, uh, they compared just straight-up resistance exercise with endurance training. So not just steady state, uh, like mild exercise, but straight out endurance versus weights, basically. And they looked at body comp change over a six-week period. And um, there was a time effect, which was predictable, I guess, where everybody actually lost some of their waist-to-hip ratio. In other words, their guts got smaller. Um, but they couldn't detect a difference between weight training and endurance training in this uh, situation. Like everybody got a smaller gut, basically. Mm -hmm. So they're just sobering messages, I guess. You know, And this is a good example of you. science doesn't care what we want, right? I mean, it'd be nice to say that HIIT training and heavy resistance training is just far superior to jogging, um, and you're going to get ripped, and the people who are doing the pure aerobic stuff just aren't going to change a bit. Now, you can find some old stuff from Kramer, and there are some different studies that suggested that aerobic training in addition to uh, 
you know, hypocaloric dieting doesn't really help that much. Uh, but, you know, all these things add to negative calorie balance. And I just think sometimes uh, the fitness public are getting a biased message, message, you know what I mean, as far as what this stuff actually means or, you know, the, imp- the, uh, the impact and the importance of it. Because, you know, here, these are one to two month studies and they can't even see the difference in body comp between weight training and endurance training. And uh, I know, Phil, you've said this for ages, but this is where people need some freaking patience. You can't say six <laughs> weeks to bigger guns. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, these guys, they can't even see the difference with lab equipment between weights and cardio, <laughs> you know, yeah. in under two months, really. Uh, and that's not saying nobody can change, you know, in an eight-week period. But, again, six or eight weeks is about the threshold in the lab. So, you know, have patience and set goals that are months or even years away if you want dramatic change. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, let's go to break. When we come back, I've got a bunch of stuff on uh, coffee. One of the things that I like to look at in the lab is energy drinks and coffee. I used to do a lot of protein research, but I'm getting more and more interested with some of these stimulant things because, wow, I mean, you can see an enhancement of, like, the stretch reflex and all kinds of cool stuff. So I think that's relevant to both bodybuilders and powerlifters. So let's uh, look at that when we get back. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lonman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Fix of Iron Radio. In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back. I was just going to add something in about the, the whole uh, not seeing results in, you know, 30 days, eight weeks, whatever. You know, every, everybody wants it now. And I don't know, the best example that I've, I've had recently was, um, you know, one, one girl in the gym asked me after she'd trained for a few weeks, was like, how long is it going to take me to be awesome? And I sat there and looked at her and thought for a minute and I said, uh, 10 years. It's going to be like, that was crazy. You know, I was like, well, you know, that depends on what your definition of awesome is. You know, to me, to be awesome, I'm sorry, it's going to take you 10 years. But, you know, the group I run around with, it, it's, it takes a long time to be awesome. So, um, no, and I mean, that's that's the same thing. I try and get people to throw out scales and stuff like that for a while if we're doing, you know, weight loss and things like that. And everybody wants it now, now, now. And, uh, yeah, it just doesn't work that way. Yeah. 
So even in the lab, I mean, they just can't detect it, you know? I mean, so imagine, do you think other people are going to notice it? Hell no. You know, yeah. even lab equipment can't can't really detect this stuff, you know? So, And like I said, I just think people get a unrealistic, um, exaggerated view of this stuff when they read some online articles and whatnot, you know, about how poor steady state is and death of steady state cardio and that sort of thing. I mean... Uh, there's definite advantages to the interval stuff, but I would always do, frankly, a bit of both when I got lean for competition because I just felt like I, I needed that sort of negative calorie balance, you know. But Okay, so moving on a little bit. Some of this is body comp related, and uh, listeners already know that I have a big interest in coffee and stimulants and that sort of thing when it comes to specifically to lifting because just like with, uh, you know, we were talking about the old days with aerobic exercise was so popular, uh, most of the caffeine research until the last probably, oh, I don't know, five or 10 years was really aerobically oriented. And there's no doubt, I think, in my mind that caffeine helps uh, endurance athletes. But what about us? You know, what about guys who get winded when they climb a flight of stairs? <laughs> we know the score. We don't have time to be charming. Uh, one of the things that um, you'll sometimes hear about coffee is that, and I've heard dietitians say this, at least the ones that aren't up on the literature, that caffeine and coffee can dehydrate you. And um, early work from Terry Graham said that doesn't happen. And I'm not surprised. Um, but let me set the stage. This is from Daily News, and this is in support of this uh, local study that was just done here uh, in Ohio. But this says, after putting the subjects through a battery of tests designed to measure fluids in the body, they found no difference between the group that got coffee and the control group. It says, but does this apply to women? The researchers aren't sure since women's blood hormones could affect the results differently. And so we're looking at some gender differences and some hydration differences uh, ourselves. And this particular one, I think, may end up getting more attention from me uh, what they did was they had subjects drink uh, about 16 ounces of coffee or water uh, and then exercise. And then they basically looked at their body composition in their uh, urine fairly closely, urine-specific gravity, it's called, to see what happened. Were, were, were there any differences? Well, uh, long story short, I was actually surprised by this, but the bod pod in the lab could actually detect a difference in fat-free mass just by drinking two big cups of coffee. So clearly the water registered, you know, that it was in their bodies. And I wasn't even sure the bod pod would be able to pick that up. But it did look like there was a, a trend toward increased fat-free mass. Now this is a lesson in itself, right? Because sometimes you'll hear dietary supplements that include creatine. They'll say, oh, an increase in fat-free mass in just two days. Well, yeah, water's fat-free, you know, so it's just water in this case. But I was actually surprised that the um, bod pod device could actually pick that up at all. Um, so there was a, a bit of an increase, a trend at least, toward an increase in water, in body water, fat-free mass. Um, and the coffee group actually went up a little bit more than the other group. And I thought that was interesting because you hear so much that coffee's dehydrating, but in this case, it looks like some of the compounds in the coffee might have helped you absorb the fluid even a little bit better. Again, there's just some trends in this data. Uh, but And then they looked at the urine, and the coffee group a little bit afterward had more dilute pee. And that suggests that they were generating more urine. But because they had more absorption, at least that's what the earlier data suggested, it looks like they absorbed more fluid and then peed it out, you know, more rapidly. At no point are any of these numbers anywhere near dehydration, though. Uh, but anyway, I thought that was sort of an interesting little paper. It's all very acute, right? D coffee versus water. Uh, God, who's the author of that? Well, these are a couple of students. So okay. uh, they're doing pilot work with this kind of stuff. But when pilot work starts to show trends, you know, when you only have like 10 subjects and that sort of thing, uh, I get interested and I might want to follow up on this. But Because um, I, I have a paper here from January of this year um, from uh, Killer and, and, and colleagues. Um, no evidence of dehydration with 
moderate daily coffee intake. It was a counterbalanced crossover in, in free living populations. So mm-hmm. they had 50 male coffee drinkers um, habitually consuming three to six cups per day for about two, like two trials and lasting like three consecutive days. And um, es- essentially, um, it said that, you know, the data suggests that when, when consumed in moderation by caffeine, habituated males mm-hmm. provided similar hydrating qualities to water. Um, yep. So, yeah, it's just uh, that was just from January this year and uh, plus one. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. Um, it was one of those um, Jukendrup, Asker Jukendrup um, studies. Yeah. Um, that researcher is around a lot in yeah. all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so that's supportive of this. If anything, yeah, it looked like it was more hydrating because they gained a little bit more fat-free mass and then they had more dilute pee immediately after. It looks like they absorbed more and they peed more, you know, but not to dehydrate. And so that's the kind of stuff where, honestly, a lot of, uh, Phil, I don't know what you think, but, I mean, power athletes, I don't think there's usually a big concern over daily training-related dehydration, you know? Mm, I actually deal with it more than you'd think. Really? Yeah, I think it's just because the general public now is dehydrated. I deal with a lot of people cramping up because they're dehydrated and low on freaking electrolytes, oddly enough. Yeah. But, I mean, that's, that's poor nutrition and hydration at the same time. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a lot with people that they go on a diet, and, of course, they automatically think low sodium, and then they end up cramping up on me. Oh, yeah, that's um, not going to help. <laughs> <laughs> so, but. Yeah, it, well, you know what I mean is, as far as what I'm thinking, at least, is it's fairly, it's non-continuous. It's generally shorter yeah. duration. I mean, unless you're going to go in there and you're just really jazzed and you're going to do a two-hour marathon or something. But, um, you know, when you're doing heavy work and that sort of thing, there's more of a pause between sets. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, you and, got time to take a drink, stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. And as far as, oh, I don't want to have any coffee before I go in, I can't just see I can't see a lifter being concerned about that. You know, that, oh, I'm going to dehydrate if I drink this coffee or, or mm. whatever. So... No, you're right, too. There's a lot of things that lead into cramps from magnesium and potassium lack to low glycogen stores. I mean, lots of things go into that. People try to pigeonhole it, you know, as one or two things causing yeah. it when it's it's a lot of different things. But That's almost interesting. Um, and, again, it might be worth following up on, especially after what you just said, John, with the other people are giving that some attention. So we got to get yeah. away from this whole... You know, coffee causes dehydration. I mean, I remember doing animal studies, and uh, you, and I mean, literally, I was elbows deep in the in the midsection of a of a big dog. You know what I mean? I could literally see the little ureters going down to the bladder, and you know, sort of that diuretic kind of effect when you uh, you put caffeine in the system like that. And I think that's where a lot of that early stuff came from. But of course, coffee is fluid itself you know and i used to say it's not an ideal hydration drink um but then again i don't know what i'm looking at here looks like there might be actually something to it that there's not a significant difference and if anything at least quantitatively it looks like you might absorb more fluid when you drink it as coffee so the age-old lifters ritual might actually be a good idea sit around and jazz up um a couple of other things wanted to look at a follow-up on some of the stuff we were looking at that I've d- discussed on the air before as far as uh, explosive performance. And Phil, you and I were talking last week about speed work and whatnot, and uh, mm-hmm. that seems to be where a lot of these effects are. Like, I have not yet looked at one rep max, you know, but using oh. using 30 and 50% loads, there is a difference after you get a whopping dose of coffee. And they actually put EMG electrodes on the subject, so they wanted to see, I mean, triceps, pack, quads, hams, they wanted to see, was there an increase in electrical activity? Uh, sort of getting at the mechanism behind what co- what coffee is doing. Um, they did not see much happen, believe it or not. There was a little bit of an increase in uh, the EMG activity, for example, in, in the quadriceps during squats, uh, when after they drank some via instant coffee. Um, and they saw a little bit more juice coming down the triceps when they looked at the bench press, but it was utterly statistically non-significant. So I don't know, maybe a little bit more electrical uh, activity, you know, think about it like juice coming down your wires, uh, but not enough 
to really be a good reliable result. It was a very minor kind of result. So um, maybe there's something else going on. There's a lot of speculation on how caffeine actually helps a muscle contract stronger. A lot of it has to do with like calcium release as it rushes in and out of the muscle and that kind of thing. Maybe it's well, more chemical than it is electrical. Yeah, but it's also too, I mean, you have such more stimulation of catecholamines you know, epinephrine and norepinephrine, which is, I mean, that's going to excite the muscle in and of itself. So, I mean, that, that seems to be where it starts. Right. Um, and, and then activating, you know, calcium and sarcoplasmic reticulum and all this other stuff. So um, there's certainly more, it's, it's very mechanistic. Yeah, it is. And the neat thing, I guess, is that it's really not up for a lot of debate whether or not it happens. You know, it, it certainly enhances contractility. And I'm not going to bore people with, you know, some of these receptors and that are on your SR and all this sort of thing. But I agree. Maybe it's the same amount of electricity coming down results in more chemical reaction at the muscle. You know what I mean? So it's not so much the electrical side, but more like you're saying, the hormonal uh, calcium release chemical side of things, you know, so. So that was one. I was actually hoping that they would find an increase in electrical activity. It would just seem intuitive. You know, you'd pound the coffee and your nervous system is just so primed, you know, but that's apparently not what's happening. So like I said, science doesn't care what we want. So yeah, maybe it's something on the chemical side of things. I don't know. Uh, and I just have one more little thing here. Uh, Phil, you have a lot of female lifters, right? I think Phil left us. Um, yeah. So I know Phil has a lot of female lifters, and um, we actually were looking at gender differences. So uh, this is a similar to the EMG study in that we we gave them two uh, servings of Via Instant Coffee, and it's really highly caffeinated. It's got between two and three times the caffeine of regular coffee. But I've taken that, and it's strong. Yeah, you, even big guys. I mean, Phil had two packs of that, and he's like, that's the real deal. I'm like, I'm telling you. Um, but this is what's cool. So we did a gender by coffee, you know, kind of interaction. So what we did was we took boys and girls and each sex got a decaf or an identical regular coffee dose. Okay. So both genders got both kinds of coffee, um, identical coffee taste and everything like that. And it looks like well, one, boys and girls both benefit from having this double dose of VIA. Uh, everybody could move the bar with more power and velocity uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, it looks like the um, guys may have gotten a bigger boost than the girls. And I thought that was interesting. And that just leads me to start speculating about all kinds of stuff like Maybe testosterone, we know that raises adrenaline receptor number. Uh, maybe guys simply have more, like you were saying, John, like because of the epi and norepi kind of enhancement from the caffeine and the coffee, the guys could respond a little bit more because they had yeah. the receptors for it. And plus, um, they just have more muscle mass. Right, exactly. Or simply, right, a bigger engine to, to fire and respond. But the neat thing was, like I said, both groups improved quite a bit. Uh, there was an interaction, at least at the stage we're at now, where the guys are responding even more than the girls, but both of them getting nice jumps. I haven't looked at the percent increase. That might be helpful. Um, but I think one of the most interesting things I've seen is when you compare a girl who just had two cups of VIA to a guy who had two cups of decaf. Now, you might think that's a nonsense comparison. Why are you going to compare the girl you know, on coffee to the guy on decaf? Well, I couldn't help but notice, I'm, ha I'm holding the graph in my hand right now, the bar graph, the bar is higher for the females than for the males. Now, statistically, I, I don't think it's significant, but in other words, girls are moving the bar faster on coffee than a guy can. So I think that's very interesting. In other yeah, words- that's all. that's pretty cool. So it's almost like, uh, coffee is the great equalizer. Again, this is just bar velocity. It's not power or strength or force output kinds of things. Um, but imagine like the sport or even the uh, the self-defense uh, ramifications of something like this. I mean, if this continues to pan out, 
that means a girl who just had a giant cup of coffee is going to punch a bad guy in the face before he can grab her. <laughs> it's just... Right. <laughs> Man, she's good. It's just... I don't know. It's it's entertaining to me that coffee has that kind of an impact, you know, that it can actually make girls, at least numerically, superior yeah, it, to the guys in bar velocity. I wonder, I wonder if the girls who had the, the via coffee, if they're just high responders, you know. Uh, well, I think they are, in fact, because... That EMG study that I was just talking about where they didn't see any differences, they recruited a group of mostly endurance-trained people, uh, runners. Now, those runners all did a little bit of resistance work, but they were type 1, thin, you know what I mean? They they were slow-twitch kinds of people. And this study, we specifically recruited a population of strength and bodybuilding oriented athletes you know what i mean so these guys could respond so i think you're right on the money with that this is a best case scenario where you've got the people with the nervous system and the muscle mass to respond you know whereas in that emg study it looked like nothing was happening you could argue that that was drawn from a pool of more endurance kinds of people and they just don't have the machinery to respond you know and these girls yeah these girls were no joke they were um there was a a field athlete. There was a couple of lifters who just lifted uh, figure competitors. You know, these were people who lifted for real. Um, yeah, and how cool is that? So there was a significant jump in bar velocity in both genders, maybe a little bit more so for the guys. But like I said, that whole idea that coffee is the great equalizer and it, it can make a girl at least numerically faster than a guy <laughs> that's that's yeah. kind of cool i think it's great so anyway yeah that's um that was one of the reasons i wanted to sh- now that's that is going to become a poster because that was something that i did and uh i mean students help we obviously in an academic lab you combine efforts you know but that was w- one of the uh, more of the professor level kinds of uh studies and we're going to share some of that information at the ISSN meeting uh, this summer and there's an ad for that at the end of the show Um, but I don't know you know Phil and I were speculating last week about what's the real advantage of moving a bar more quickly like you know Phil was saying listen if you grind out a big bench press that's still a winning move in powerlifting you know Um, unless you've got something like weak tries or something like that, where you need the velocity coming out of the hole, and then you can kind of coast through the end of the lift. Yeah, but, I mean, it just know. depends on where your weak point is, and, yeah, and, and and where, you know, in the range of motion are you weak? Are you, you know, if it's a deadlift, are you weak off the floor? Are you weak at mid range or lockout? I mean, you know, for me personally, it's it's off the floor coming in into you know mid range, and then once I get there, then you know my lockout is fine. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, speed speed is certainly a, a, a very important factor, and it's often overlooked and, and somewhat underused. Well, I can tell you, too, um, and I know you're aware of this, but a recently submitted paper, um, I, I literally looked at the effect of via instant coffee on stuff like bar velocity and power output, and it's somewhere like a 9%, 9 or 10% increase. Um and when you compare that to something like 10 or 12 weeks of periodized lifting just for power, uh, you can get in 60 minutes with a couple of cups of coffee what takes you <laughs> two or three months to achieve with training. Now, you might say, yeah, but the training is in a, you, you know, that's not like the coffee is almost doping in that sense. The training brings real nervous system changes. You know what I mean? But I just that to me, at least it underscores the potency of coffee when it comes to something like bar velocity or even speed work uh, when you can achieve literally with two cups of coffee today what would arguably take you two or three months of training to achieve yeah i I have coffee every training session i mean for 30 30 minutes before i go train and i've i've compared with coffee and not having coffee and and the difference is just remarkable um you know what what you feel and what you can produce sometimes i think that when 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 you have like heavy hardcore lifters and they and they have coffee i think they're more high they're they respond better to yeah. it and they're high responders versus you know someone who um an equivalent to an endurance athlete just something about the lifting 
just because of the contractility and what it does and the muscle and the mechanisms just makes you more responding. Yeah, I almost took that a step further too, is there's actually um, a gene or a small set of genes that make people respond very differently to caffeine. Some people are much better responders, some people much less. Uh, and I think if listeners think about it, you probably know people who get super wired from coffee and other people who just, they could drink it before bed and it doesn't do anything. Um, right. So I, I agree with you 100%. I think maybe it's training status. You know, like you said, some people are just built to actually, you got the right machine to put that kind of fuel in, you know. Yeah. And then there's also that genetic component where I'm thinking there is a possibility, and this would be an interesting study to see if a lot of the power athletes, the, the lifters and the sprinters and whatnot, um, they self-select because they have the right genetic makeup to respond you know, to stimulatory kinds of things, adrenaline, right. coffee, whatever. And then the endurance athletes maybe don't, maybe they've got the genetic makeup where they don't respond as well, at least in a power environment, you know. Uh, I know coffee helps the endurance athletes too, but it would just oh, be yeah. kind of cool to see is your what's the percentage of this um, genotype in a power population versus in, in a runner population. You know, I just wonder if it differs. It'd be a cool study. Definitely. Anyway, well, that's about all I've got. Um, like I said, I just wanted to run down through. There's a couple of other studies we've been looking at, like uh, barefoot versus shod sprinting and running and that kind of stuff. And I know a lot of our listeners aren't as excited about the running stuff, but uh, and we weren't seeing any kind of really dramatic differences either, um, especially you know when you look at sprinting in shoes versus not and all that kind of thing. But um, that might be an unfair comparison, maybe on some level, because when you sprint, you know it's much more forefoot, ball of the foot kind of thing, and oh, yeah. uh, you're sprinting on a very rough track surface. It's just hard to do that when you're not in shoes. But there's been a lot of research uh, in the last year about is it better, is it more natural somehow? Does it meet our DNA requirements better just to be barefoot? You know, because you run more on the ball of your foot instead of heel strike, and it's almost like paleo, to be honest. You know, it's it's trying to bring us back to our evolution and what's more natural what were what were we naturally selected to do you know and during the thousands of generations before we lived in cities and villages you know you could make the argument that the paleo diet was what we were selected to actually run on or that barefoot bare feet were actually what we were naturally selected to do and you know technology in all its different ways whether it's food industry or shoes or whatever it just changes the picture a lot you know so people have different opinions, of course, about paleo, and I think the version of paleo they get online is is not the academic, not the real version, right. <laughs> frank, frankly. Um, but it is neat to think that, you know, it's just like anything else. Technology, we can, we can wed technology in good ways or in very awkward ways that actually ends up screwing us up in some way, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know, any final thoughts? What's going on with you these days? Oh, gosh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, getting ready to start data collection here. We've already recruited probably about 12, 13 people, and we're going to get some people in here shortly to start doing the consent and getting ready to train, um, have them train. And I'm leaving um, next week to go to Columbus, Ohio, for the Elite FTS Learn and Train Seminar 8, and uh, I'll be giving a talk on um, overtraining, actually. It's called Overtraining Truth, Lies, and Consequences. Sweet. Um, so that'll be really fun. Um, it's always a blast to go back there, and um, still doing writing for Muscle Mag and doing working on some other articles, and um, so uh, yeah, it's just staying busy. Right on. Well, I think the world needs guys like you. You know, Mike Nelson, some of you guys that are sort of a occasional co-host on the show because you're lifters who are also scientists. You know, and it brings a better perspective, I think, for our listeners. And that's why we keep having you guys on, because if all you have is an egghead, you know, and he weighs 85 pounds and, you know, he doesn't know what what some of these things feel like. And maybe he doesn't have some of the same insights. Like, it's great for you to come up with a hypothesis, like how long of the on the should I spend on the negative and what will that do? You know, and this is the kind of stuff that you naturally come up with if you're a lifter yourself. You know, so oh yeah, there's just I mean you could there's a 
he can spend an entire career just coming up with just excellent questions to answer just based on your own training experience. Exactly. I mean, my interest is usually the link between nutrition and metabolism when it comes to sports, you know, but it's also very interesting. I mean, my dissertation was all about eccentric trauma, you know, and the, the recovery time frame and all that kind of stuff, you know. And, yeah, and um, starting in the fall, you know, I, I don't, I know I'll be here in the summer, but um, I know our lab is actually doing a, a, another cre a creatine study, creatine timing study, and um, they're actually going to be looking at basically just um, creatine, giving to the subjects they'll have probably like, you know, 40, 50 people, but doing, um, you know, strength markers and some upper body and lower body endurance, and they'll start training, um, you know, say four to five weeks into the actual study and then give them creatine. And they'll do like a, a pre and post, like give them to them like before and after and see what the differences are. And um, I, I've talked to um, the, the guy heading it up and he doesn't think there's really going to be any difference um, between take, taking creatine pre-workout and then taking it post. And oh. it's going to be a 10 long, it's going to be a 10 week study. Oh, good. So probably long enough to at least see, start to see some things. Yes. You know? Yes. You know, that reminds me of one last little bit. Uh, one, uh, study that I was involved with very closely. In fact, I just got a text from uh, one of the students that were spearheading it. Uh, they were looking at beta alanine and caffeine. They were actually adding um, a 30-day cycle of beta alanine to caffeine-habituated guys, and they wanted to see, did the beta alanine blunt some of the lactate, you know, because they were doing reps to failure uh, in the yeah. bench press. And, you know, that'll kick up your lactate production, especially with the caffeine, because caffeine enhances glycolysis. You know, you dump more lactate and all that sort of thing. And they wanted to see, because beta alanine, of course, is a precursor to carnosine. It's a buffer. Yep. You know, yep. would it would it reduce it? And they did see trends toward reduced lactate. Um, and one of the most exciting things is we're looking at fatigue index. And I haven't analyzed that with them yet. But uh, the beta alanine group almost definitely is going to have an improved um, fatigue index so when you oh, yeah. set them at like that's one of the things that it does i mean it helps buffer like hydrogen ions and exactly know, all that stuff so under like different conditions i mean like single bouts of high intensity say 60 seconds you know in duration or multiple bouts of high intensity with short rest or or single bouts of high intensity when you're already fatigued right yeah uh, i think they're going to end up the beta alanine group is going to end up doing more reps before they fail you know, at 30% of their max or whatever, 50%, whatever. Um, but, and, and a trend toward lower lactate. So I just thought what was cool about their paper uh, or their poster, because I think this is actually going to see the light of day, this one, is there probably will be reductions in lactate by the time this is done, and there's going to be less fatigue. Um, and again, the coolest thing is that it's beta alanine added on to a 300 mg dose of caffeine prior to the workout. So that's, every that's really, that's pretty awesome because, I mean, beta alanine in and of itself i mean i can think of like four or five you know papers now that it doesn't really seem to improve max strength in and of itself so I, i'm kind of curious of what if they're going to assess max strength if that's going to stay the same or go up since you've now added caffeine right and you know what interested me metabolically was caffeine increases lactate production beta alanine decreases it yet they're yeah. both ergogenic in different ways you know uh, so, yeah, we need to have some studies that start stacking one thing on top of another, just one step at a time, you know, because we teach. Yeah, I, I know there's some supplements well, supplements out there that that have beta alanine and creatine, but I, I suspect in the foreseeable future that you'll have beta alanine plus caffeine. So. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I'll let everybody know. Like I said, that's under development right now. Um, so cool stuff going on. Like like I said, lots of coffee stuff, and uh, it's just helpful to learn some of this stuff. Like somebody who's uncharitable might say, oh, well, so coffee helps lifts, so what? Yeah, but how much, you know? And does beta alanine help even further, you know? Or does if the coffee doesn't dehydrate you, does it actually help hydrate you? There's a lot of questions, like you said. Uh, when you're involved in lifting yourself, you're just full of this sort of curiosity, you know, and you can't help but ask all these questions. So the my favorite thing about research is you literally create a new fact out of thin air, you know, mm -hmm. something that nobody knows. The best of these facts end up in posters and in manuscripts and even in textbooks, you know, uh, but that's the, the empowering thing about this. Once you learn how to do research, 
and you control things properly, you're literally creating a new fact out of nothing. This is a, it's a whole new level of thinking, you know. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. It's always always really fun and a blast. We will uh, see everybody next week. Uh, Phil head to Jet, um, and uh, uh, we'll see you then. Hey, sports nutrition fans, join us in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida, June 20 and 21 for the 11th Annual ISSN Conference and Expo. You'll learn the latest, greatest sports nutrition from the best minds in the business. Some of our speakers include Juan Carlos Santana, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, Gina Lombardi, and many, many more. You'll learn about intermittent fasting, how to exercise to offset poor eating, and also nutritional strategies for maintaining or gaining muscle mass. But the best part is you'll get to rub elbows with the best scientists in the business. The ISSN, why would you go anywhere else? Go to www.theissn.org for more information. That's www.theissn.org for more info. See you there. Hey, this is Rob Fortress Fortney, and I'm here to tell you about some of the cool new stuff us guys at Iron Radio are bringing your way. Thanks to our loyal supporting members, we have enough cash flow to start migrating to Lipson, arguably the premier podcast host, and one that serves up some very high-end shows and tools. The change will start slowly with a little backup page that can be found right now on the Lipson website. This means our occasional server errors cannot keep the show out of your hands. But as we move more and more content over to the new server, it's going to allow us to do a couple of brand new things. First, we're planning an Iron Radio app for iPhone and Android. Believe it. If you're not sure what RSS feeds are or how to describe in iTunes, apps are a very simple way to get our content, either by downloading it or even streaming it through the app on a phone or tablet. Even better, you'll occasionally see a little E on an app link that means there's extra content you can access for that show. For example, we can add extended audio to a show, or even pics like wallpapers or science graphs that support what we're saying. The iPhone app even has a search feature. Want the show with Eddie Cohen right now? You'll be able to grab it quickly. Second, you'll see an improved media player on www.ironradio.org. You can download or listen easily right from the home page with no other windows or pop-ups necessary. Third, and maybe best, we'll be adding all new bonus content. Behind the scenes, special interviews, audio articles delivered from co-host personal libraries, on-site coverage, editorials, rants, bloopers, and more. The growth of the show and the new functionality does come with some cost. Starting in June, episodes older than a year... 50 shows will become premium content. There are several reasons for this. For one, serving audio to our growing listenership through a big boy system like Lipson costs a bit more. Second, our RSS feed service called FeedBurner has a limit, so this will keep us from having to drop early episodes one at a time as new ones come out. In fact, here's a tip. If you want all the old episodes at zero cost, download them before June 2014. We're telling you now because that's how we roll. So how does premium content work? You pick up an inexpensive scrip- subscription at my.lipson.com, which gets you every Iron Radio episode plus new bonus content that no one else can hear. These subscriptions are very cheap, about 2 to $8, and can be gotten monthly, yearly, etc. Put when you want. Further, if you're a current supporting member through PayPal, we appreciate your ongoing support. Free new content each week is possible because of your dedication. You help thousands of young lifters, or anyone, get news, education, and entertainment that they otherwise might not get. Simply email me through the ironradio.org homepage, and our web guru Lonnie will buy you a year's membership on my Lipson as an iron brother or sister. Finally, let me reiterate. 
as we grow, we want to keep new episodes free forever while providing better services and content for the whole Iron Army. Thanks 50 times for your ongoing support. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.